You're listening to The Nancy Gaines Show. The goal of this podcast is to help business owners be successful and gain the advantage. Nancy has helped some of today's top Fortune 500 companies across a wide spectrum of industries work through their toughest challenges. She can help you too. So if you can't find the solutions you need, there are no more books to read or workshops to attend. The Nancy Gaines Show can be the difference between your success and failure. And now your host, Nancy Gaines. Hi, this is Nancy Gaines, and welcome to the Nancy Gaines Show, where we provide actionable ideas for entrepreneurs to grow their business and be even more productive. The focus of today's podcast is all about how to gain really big corporate contracts. And I'm super excited to have a friend and a very special guest with me, Randall Dobbins. Let me tell you about him. For over 15 years, he has trained hundreds of successful, diverse companies in the art of landing large corporate contracts. As a buyer, seller, and minority business owner, he has spent years perfecting processes for designing, creating, negotiating, implementing, and managing strategic partnerships for the world's largest corporations. He's worked with Shell, Westinghouse, and his own company, Dobbins International. Today, he's created a framework to help disadvantaged business enterprise owners land massive corporate contracts that can transform their companies. Welcome, Randall. Thanks for sharing part of your day. What else do you want to add to that introduction? You nailed it, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you. We are so excited to have you. I know a lot of my clients are asking, how do you break into corporations? So this might be a really, really good episode for them to listen to. So let me ask you right off the bat, what is a disadvantaged business owner? Great question. One of the things that I ask people to kind of wrap their mind around, because you don't oftentimes think of yourself as disadvantaged, is there are organizations in the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 called supply chain. They define disadvantaged business under about four, five, six categories, depending on the country that, that they're operating in. They typically include women business owners. They will include minority business owners in the United States. Minority is black, African-American, Hispanic-American, Asian-American, Indian-American, and native. Uh, Diverse or disadvantaged business also includes gay, lesbian. It includes service-disabled veteran, and it includes disabled. So in, in other countries, as you might imagine, minority would mean one thing on the African continent compared to the European continent compared to, you know, Australia or some other place. But in all cases, we're talking about communities typically underserved and not being able to participate in the $14-18 trillion of uh, corporate spend among the Fortune 500. Wow, that's broader than I was thinking. So thank you for clarifying that. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So like I said in our introduction, many of our listeners would love to land a big contract with corporations. And you say that one of the most common mistakes is people are unclear in the value they provide. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. The biggest problem when you're talking to a corporation around what you do is saying, I have a staffing firm, I have a janitorial firm, I have an IT 
company. I have uh, I, my my company makes X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that we need to understand as disadvantaged business owners is the corporation is already buying those items. So the question is not what we do. That's not the value. The value is what do we do that intrigues their interest as to why we would be better than who they're currently using. So rather than saying, I have a staffing company, you would say, I have a staffing company that reduces savings by 3 to 7% for existing clients, and we can increase productivity of the people that we deploy typically by X percent or by some factor. That totally makes sense. I used to, well, actually, when I work with my clients, I call that selling the problem. You're not selling. And both of you and I just took a class with John Block, who is amazing, and he calls it moving people from pain island to pleasure island. Does that yes. all kind of wrap up to the same thing you're thinking about with this value? Very similar. The idea is you want the response to be, wow, tell me more. You don't want the response to be, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people put labels on things versus selling the results. So that's a really good tip. So how people – you gave a couple examples there. Where, what's a bad example that you've seen people do? Because you used to be in purchasing, right, or you did something Ab- – Absolutely. Right? Great question. Great question. I was, a, I was in purchasing. I did procurement at the highest levels for, for Shell. I was also a seller at Westinghouse where I was selling the types of agreements that we train people on to the, the largest 50 chemical companies. So these are specialty agreements that are designed for a uh, specific purpose. But during my days at Shell, as a minority woman business coordinator, because that, that as well was a defined function at that time, people would walk up to me when I would go to an expo or a networking event and they would say, hey, how do I do business with Shell? I sell microcomputers. I'm like, well, okay, Dell sells microcomputers. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I buy my microcomputers from. <laughs> and how did, you, uh, how did you direct that person to help them you know, be considered? So one of the things was I I understood that not everyone had done their homework, which is job number one, to understand whether or not Shell purchased microcomputers or today PCs um, or tablets, so forth and so on. So I would say, well, okay, all right, I understand you sell microcomputers. Tell me a little bit more about your company. Where are you located? What, what, What territories of mine can you service? Now, bear in mind, this is a person that walked up to Shell Oil Company, which at the time was the largest oil company. We were larger than Exxon. This was before they became ExxonMobil. And the person said, well, I can supply microcomputers in Houston. And it's like, did you not understand that you're selling to the corporate buyer that um, has, uh, has impact to sell these to the entire state of Texas, all of the U.S.? And if we write the agreement properly, beyond. <laughs> so you telling me that you can uh, sell me microcomputers in my local geography was strike number two, because you didn't quite understand how Shell went to market. So after that, 
I uh, would probe and ask a few more questions about, well, tell me about your value-added services. And the value-added services were undifferentiated, in which case my conclusion was that the person wasn't ready yet to do business with a company like Shell. It wasn't that they had a bad company. It wasn't that they didn't know what they were doing. They weren't ready. And that's one of the biggest problems, one of two problems that disadvantaged business enterprises have selling into corp large corporations. Number one, we're not quite ready. And number two, we, ha we don't have the capacity. That's one of the mistakes you talk about on your website, that people are perceived as not being able to handle the business, meaning they're not scalable or they just, like if they got 1,000 new customers tomorrow, they would just break. There you go. I had a fantastic conversation a couple of weeks back. I was at the National Minority Supplier Development Conference's uh, annual con uh, uh, council's annual conference. It's an international event. They bring in people who work with disadvantaged business enterprises globally. And I was talking to one of my uh, compadres at DuPont, and we were sharing stories because I was telling her how we trained people to address this very problem. And she said, oh, Randall, you have no idea how frequently I come across this. She says, I have all these people to come up and tell me I have a print shop. And she says, that's great, but I don't have a need for a print shop. What I have a need for is a company that can provide me managed print services. She says, I, in DuPont, now that we've merged with Dow or bought them, take your pick, need to be able to have one of my end users Press a job, I press a button, that job prints wherever uh, uh, in, the, on the, uh, uh, in the planet, wherever on the planet, wherever in the world, that that user needs that job to print, and I need to have the confidence that whoever the printer is for that job knows DuPont, Dow's specs, they have sufficient equipment quality and uh, controls in place, and they can have that print job on the desk that the end user specified within the time specified. I like now, that. That's a great listening, example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Listening to that, you might say, that sounds extreme. Like, well, wow, who can do that? But then you go, well, okay, FedEx Kinko's can do that. <laughs> right, for sure. So, okay. So I, I bet some of our listeners are now getting a little nervous about this. At first they're like, oh, this will be great. Like, and now they're rethinking if they should even do this. What kind of tips can you give someone who wants to break into the corporate world? So this is the purpose of our training. There's two things that I want your listeners to understand. First and foremost, big companies are nothing more than small companies that did everything right. So there's no reason to be intimidated. The second thing is these companies have had decades to evolve into where they are right now, but they've also had suppliers who evolved their sales, customer service, and, and operational chains to, to scale with large customers. So the opportunity for us is not to walk in as a small guy thinking that we're going to beat the big guy. The opportunity for us is enough of us smaller guys work together, i.e. strategic partnerships, to take on the big guy. And why will we be successful? We will be successful 
because we see the world differently. We think differently. We have different life, exp- uh, life experiences. We're hungrier. That's the exact innovation that the big companies are looking for right now. It's not by accident that all these big companies who never would have gone with Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter have a corporate Twitter account, they have a corporate LinkedIn account, they have a corporate Facebook page. (laughs) They could have done without all of that, but they have to have it. And that's because little guys came in and made it clear that this was going to be the next step of innovation for their businesses. So for us, we can strategically partner with other companies to take on the big boys and be successful in the in uh, in uh, in the large corporations. That yes, excuse me, I get excited about this. Yeah, that that's awesome. So, can you give us an example, and it could be a made-up one or a real example? For example, oh, this was this was great. Yeah. I had a friend of mine call me not not more than about uh, four or five uh, hours ago saying that um, she was in the oil and gas sector and that um, her market share was drying up. She's been in business for a while, and she was confronted with potentially having to close, uh, close the doors, let some, lay some people off, just uh, you, you know, the, the, the worst case imaginable for, for a business owner, and most all of us have been there when you have downturns in the business. And she said she remembered her strategic alliance training. She found some people that she could trust she found some people who had products that didn't compete with hers. These are all things that we, that we uh, help people to understand. She realized what her core business was so that she wasn't giving away her intellectual property and she wasn't concerned about a partner stealing uh, her existing customers from her. And they put a fantastic team together that is now gone into a new market and they're writing contracts like there's no tomorrow. Oh, that's a great success. Great success story. That's awesome. Absolutely. And, 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 and Nancy, just so the listeners have a good feel for the way we – because people oftentimes say, well, I know what partnerships are. I don't really like those. I know what strategic alliances are. I don't really like those. The power is in having a couple of real clear examples of how you think about a strategic alliance that really makes the difference. Yes, this is with the big boys, but the principle is exactly the same. You take Apple and you take AT&T. The iPhone is a strategic alliance or collaboration between those two companies. When you really step back and think about it, Apple could have bought a cellular network company. AT&T could buy a phone manufacturing company. But what they decided was it didn't make sense for Apple to get into telephony, and it didn't make sense for AT&T to get into cell phone hardware. Apple wanted to establish a new form factor as a a lead-in product for their iPad and their desktop machines, leveraging on their iPod success, which is why the iPhone was a great device for them. AT&T wanted to replace their their old dying uh, revenue stream called analog landlines or long distance and capitalize on their wiring infrastructure, which they have globally, their fiber optic network, they can move data cheaper over that network. So what happens? Apple sells a machine that retails for seven and eight hundred bucks to millions of AT&T customers, 
You can do the math on that to see how much profit Apple was generating. <laughs> right. And AT&T got everybody to commit to a 30 buck a month data plan for two years. You can do the math on that for the, the millions of customers that AT&T had. And so what made this a strategic alliance was that it drove the top-line revenue of both companies. So for, for us as um, minority business owners, women business owners, disadvantaged business enterprise owners, when we start putting these relationships together, these aren't relationships of convenience where, you know, hey, I got a project and I just need to hook up with somebody. It is what is my real core business, and when I put my alliance together, what really drives my top-line revenue helps me to see three to five years down the road, takes care of the mission that I have for me, my family, and my community because the large corporate contract is merely a footprint for the greater things that we all wanted to do as business owners when we started it ourselves. So do you think these principles will work for solopreneurs or team companies that just have a few people? It's a slightly different route. We're talking about the really big contracts right now. What right. we're talking about for, for these contracts are um, as small as 50000 a year. They could be as small as 20000 a year, 50000 a year, 100000 a year, a million a year, $5 million a year, $100 million a year, $500 million a year for three- to five-year contracts. For a solopreneur, they can uh, apply these principles because, well, quite simply, the principles are one of the things that we as um, – small business owners have to understand is that the economy has changed. The Rockefeller, J. Paul Getty, Henry Ford days of owning all the factors of production are gone. We're in what I call the partner economy. We see it in the tech space. If we as business owners, even if we're solopreneurs, don't know how to partner in order to get greater wallet share of our clients, somebody's going to always be nipping away at bits and pieces of our business until we have no more. So the principles around partnering are the same whether we go after large corporations or whether we go after consumers. One of the examples that I use for solopreneurs is imagine you're a holistic practitioner and uh, people just come to your shop for, for, for uh, one, one item, but you realize they have other needs. On the one hand, they may want to do yoga with you. On the other hand, they may have a nutritional issue. On the other hand, they may have uh, some, 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 some other physical things that they're trying to deal with. You're not trying to be the master of all those things, but imagine that you have great strategic partners that aren't competing with you so that when the customer does come to you, you can satisfy the, you know, a good number of the things that they have going on in one, in one spot. Totally agree with that. I call that the Amazon effect, right? You just go to Amazon for everything. And when I teach my clients, I say, if you want to 10x your business, you have to have partners. You cannot do it just as a there, solopreneur. You need partners, you exactly go. like your. There you go. Absolutely, you put your finger on it. I just named that the Amazon effect. I don't know if it's a true, a true word, but I'm like, hey, it's like Amazon. <laughs> you can go to uh, the. Um, a patent and trademark office, and you can see Amazon Effect is registered. <laughs> and if oh, not, really? it's all yours. Wow. <laughs> but no, that's a great point. And what I tell solopreneurs, consultants, 
about going after corporates is uh, you have one of two options. You can go through the traditional purchasing organization. Um, the reason that might be good for you is those contracts tend to survive downturns in a large company's business quicker than if you just go straight to the quote-unquote decision maker who has a discretionary budget to bring you on. That can be a good way to get in the door. I mean, right now in the wellness space and uh, in other areas, uh, you can go into a large corporation. You can find a manager that has discretionary budget. You can get a 5, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 a year budget, I mean uh, project, and uh, contract rather, and you can do extremely well. But when the downturn comes, unless it's the CEO, those contracts um, fall by the wayside very quickly. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really good information. And do you think it's the same whether it's services or a physical product? For example, if somebody wants to come in and do corporate training, should they also go through the procurement department? Yes, it's more competitive. The requirements are tighter. But you know, think of it this way. If you're going to put it, – it's almost like uh, – I hate to use this analogy – but it's almost like doing the research on buying the car. If you do all the homework to pick the right car that meets the needs for the family, then there's a slim chance you're going to get rid of it um, unless it's a lemon. True. Now, if you just happen to go to the used car lot, you got it cheap, it happened to be a, a, an item of convenience, well, hey, <laughs> you might get rid of that one a little quicker. Right. So someone who wants to do corporate training should track down and do their research and figure out the procurement person and, and go that angle first? So the, we're, 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 we're switching gears slightly, uh, and so we want your people to be productive, so we don't want folks wasting their time and spinning their wheels. So in this case, uh, because the corporate cell is a little bit more involved, it, to be the most productive, you want to do two things. The first thing is, and you can use LinkedIn, you can, you, you're never more than one or two degrees of separation from the person you need to talk with. So the idea is you find out where tr corporate training is uh, housed, in which business unit, in which organization is it housed. You have an exploratory conversation with that person that you found via LinkedIn. How do they do it? Do they go through a formal bidding process? Do they involve their supply chain organization? Or is it something that is um, procured or sourced in some other part of the organization? And then you follow that process. Wow, you make it sound so easy. This must be what you teach at your upcoming event in January. Is that true? Absolutely, absolutely. We're, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail. One of the things we share with people is, one of the things you need to understand about selling to corporates, it's, it's, it's both rewarding and, and maddening and frustrating. It is not – no, any one person in the process of deciding whether they're going to buy from you can say no, but you'll rarely find one person that can say yes. <laughs> And so one of the things, uh, one of the major things that we're going to work through in our uh, three-day workshop, January 12th through the 14th in Austin, Texas, is how do you navigate that and what are the expectations you need to have for that process? You know, it could happen that you could talk to a corporation one day and get a contract the next day, but it would be super, super, super rare. 
It's kind of like finding the blue diamond. <laughs> if you happen to be at the bottom of the Atlantic where the Titanic was, yeah, sure, you can find it. It, it, it was there for a long, for a long time. <laughs> That's awesome. So who would be a perfect candidate to come to that event in January, and where can they find more information? We would tell anyone who dared dream to, to go after uh, to really and truly try and build something that they they want it to to be sustainable that that they want it to to be a legacy that they want it to go you know kind of like what we see with some of the bigger companies if you dare to believe that that's something that um, you know a genius you've been given that should be shared with the world and you want to leverage the footprint of a large corporate contract then this event's for you you need to come and we're going to tell you everything you need to know, um, and if you decide, because this is also extremely valuable, if you decide that this isn't for you, then the tools that you walk away with will help you wherever you decide to go. Kind of like we said, if you decide you don't want the big corporate contracts, that you'd rather go after a consumer market or another market, or you want to have a more robust uh, solo practitioner business, you still need the exact same uh, the exact same tools, the success, uh, success tools. And you can find more information at www.blueprintlive2018.com, www.blueprintlive2018.com. Awesome. Are you ready for the fun signature question I ask every guest, Randall? Absolutely. All right, here we go. Since we're all about productivity, if you had one more hour in your day, so 25 hours instead of 24, how would you spend that extra hour? Oh, that's kind of a trick question. <laughs> what, 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 what are the things that I learned way back in when, even as a productivity tool, is um, on the one hand, there's no such thing as work, personal life balance, but there is such a thing as priorities. You give me an extra hour, and I'm going to always go to my top three, faith, family, and friends. That's awesome. And it's not a trick question. That's the most popular answer. I want to spend more time on, with my family, with my loved ones, or on health, or reading. Those are the most popular. Only one person said she wanted to work more. <laughs> and I didn't believe I, I, her. <laughs> hey, Nancy, I, I know people. We can get her a prescription for that. <laughs> Yes, definitely. That's why we are business owners, to have the freedom to do what we want to do when we want to do it, right? Absolutely. What I would tell you in the context of what I do, the most productive thing you can do is uh, more often than not, we beat our heads against the wall because we just don't know what we don't know. So rather than find out what we need to know, spending that extra hour being productive to do our research, unfortunately, a good number of us walk away saying, Large companies won't do business with me because I'm a woman. Large businesses won't do business with me because I'm XYZ. 30 years ago in the United States, 70% of the reason why disadvantaged business owners didn't get a break, and this may be true in other parts of the world, was because of our diversity. Now, I would say 30% uh, of the reason is attributable to our diversity. So we got a 7 out of 10 chance if we do our homework, if we're productive, learn what we don't know, 
and create solutions that we can't yet imagine, then in this upcoming year where we're looking at potentially trillions of dollars of capital spend coming into the U.S., we're looking at uh, potentially a better economy than we've seen in a while. The, uh, we're seeing a greater emphasis on diversity and inclusion than we've ever seen in yours and my lifetime. And I'm a little older than you, Nancy. <laughs> so, but in yours and my Just lifetime, barely. Just barely. <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> that um, for those of us who choose not to get prepared and be ready, then we are engaging in the least productive activity out there. I love that you actually said that because both you and I fall into your category of disadvantages by the, the criteria you said earlier. And I, I get really frustrated with people say, saying, I'm not going to get picked because I'm a disadvantaged person. So good for you for kind of putting it out there and saying that's only you still have a 7 in 10 chance. So don't – it's probably something in somebody's head that's it's going on, not in the real world. Like they think they're not going to get picked. But thank you for – busting through that myth because I'm with you doing the right stuff doing the right stuff you'll get hired that's it's really simple it, it really is you do your homework uh, you, you we're still playing the lottery but we're playing the lottery in any business and what I mean by playing the lottery is you know the right product at the right time uh, in front of the right customer is Providence and you get better and better and better with that with practice one because you pick better customers but two because you've crafted your message, you've got something that you know delivers value to the market, you know how to deliver it. <laughs> yeah, it works. It totally works. Yeah. Everything is a system in business is what I teach people. And, and same way with getting the really big corporate clients, you follow the system and it works. Absolutely, absolutely. More often than that, we, we were highly successful when I was at Wesco. We got uh, seven out of the eight uh, customers that we pursued, the largest one was $15 million a year for a five-year contract. That was a minimum. They had capital spend that um, they didn't share with us, so that was a $75 million contract, and we had a clear, consistent formula for doing strategic alliances where we could tell them right off the bat the amount of savings that they were going to get, how they could uh, quantify that savings, take it to the bottom line, have the CFO sign off on it, so that it dropped, uh, it dropped straight to earnings per share. Now, to a number of the listeners, this may sound intimidating. We'll talk about more. We'll talk about this more in Austin. But what I want them to take away from this is, you can have that conversation when you become the buyer's trusted advisor. In every single customer engagement, I don't care whether it's corporate or any other corporate in- engagement, you want to be the customer's trusted advisor. And what that means is you have established yourself as the expert in the field. We did that in our IBM days. When I was with IBM, we had a core set of clients. I don't remember what we called them, but we were their advisors, and it was great. And they were our top, top clients. And it was big, big, big corporate contracts over and over again. So totally agree with that. Well, before we wrap up, Randall, what else do you want to talk about that I didn't think to ask you? The only other thing I would share, and thank thank you for asking, I appreciate that, and it's more of a restatement, this is doable. This is doable. What I would share with the listeners is it's very doable. It can become intoxicating. So for our business, 
I'll, I'll, I'll leave them with this. You want a corporate client or you want your corporate book of business. You can have multiple corporate clients. You want it to be big enough that they demand your attention, but you don't want it to be so big that when a downturn in their business happens that it puts you out of business. So we always share with people to try and cap corporate business or one single customer. If I, let me be more precise about that. You never want one single customer to be more than 40% of your business. So if you have uh, a $500,000 a year uh, business right now and you take on a million-dollar corporate client, then right, right off the bat, they're, they're going to be a huge portion of your business, which means you need to grow and bring in either another corporation or more of the business that you had to get that corporate business down to large enough that they have your attention, but not so large that if they have to cancel your contract, you're out of business. It's kind of like rebalancing your investment portfolio. It is your your your, your client <laughs> investment portfolio, absolutely. When you're and I know I'm getting hard. a little long-winded. I, I apologize for this, but what I what what I would tell what I would tell the the listeners is, we've seen this model play out time in and time time again, which is people decide they want to go after Walmart. They decide in the old days they wanted to go after Sears. Sears would give them these huge contracts to supply them nationally and internationally. These companies weren't ready, and they went out of business. And in some cases, there were unscrupulous big corporations out there that did that intentionally to take the competition away for some of their preferred, uh, preferred uh, suppliers. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, oftentimes these can be the kiss of death, which is why the heart of our program is around capacity building. You, you said a moment ago that uh, one of the things we recognize is that people don't have a clear value proposition and they're not ready for the business when it comes. This falls under not being ready for the business when it comes. So when we say you need to be your, your client's trusted advisor, they need to have every confidence that as their business changes, you can change with them. If they do an acquisition, like we mentioned in the Dow and DuPont story, they have to have some confidence that you can scale with them to take on that additional business. We can do this. That's, that's what strategic alliances do for you. They give you that capacity to scale with your key clients. Great advice. So listeners, go, go down in the middle of winter to Texas, and check out this event because you're going to really rock your business by learning about how to get some of these really, really big corporate contracts. Randall, thanks so much for sharing part of your day, being on the show, giving these great tidbits. Listeners, I just added some rapid results days on my calendar for Q1. This is where you accelerate your business in just one day instead of coaching, which can take many, many months. Go to nancygaines.com slash rapid results to learn more. And if you loved our show, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Until next time, go out and gain the advantage. You've been listening to The Nancy Gaines Show, where you can gain the advantage. To schedule a VIP strategy day or speed consulting session with Nancy, connect with her on her website, nancygaines.com. That's nancy, G-A-I-N-E-S, dot com. On Twitter, Nancy L. Gaines. And on LinkedIn, Nancy Gaines. 
Be sure to check back on Nancy's website for new episodes. Until next time, you've been listening to The Nancy Gaines Show. Go out and gain the advantage.